You're listening to Knowing Faith, a podcast of Training the Church. This is Kyle Worley, and I'm joined by my co-hosts, Jen Wilkin and JT English. And on today's episode, we're also joined by Andy Crouch. Andy is partner for Theology and Culture at Praxis. It's an organization that works as a creative engine for redemptive entrepreneurship. He's also the author of many books, including The TechWise Family, Strong and Weak, and Culture Making. On this episode, we discuss the relationships between theology, culture, power, and institutions. We hope you enjoy the discussion. Could not be more excited to be here. Um, we're actually recording on a Friday, and I never get to see JT and Jen on a Friday. Here we are. You look the same. I thought you were in pajamas <laughs> on Friday. Yeah, normally, yeah, I, I did have pajamas on for most of the morning, but not right now. Oh, here you are. But you, you have a onesie on. They, the, 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 the audience can't see it. <laughs> Don't you like it? I borrowed it from Jen's office. But it's, it's a snuggie. It's glamorous, though. Jen, actually, for those of you who might, might like to know, does have a snuggie I'm in perpetually her cold. Yeah. yeah. Uh, not not wow. like demeanor-wise. But yeah, and you know, I had a great idea for a product that never panned out. Do you know what it was? What's the idea? It was the pluggy. Okay. It's an electric snuggie. <laughs> okay. That sounds like a torture device, is what it sounds like. Uh, it sounds like something that you would use to. That's just one of my entrepreneurial ideas well, that never well, made it onto well, as seen on TV. Talking about um, products um, and talking about objects, we have the author of Culture Making. How was that for a segue? <laughs> Ooh, segue. <laughs> That's good. Um, listen, we are so happy to be joined today with, uh, by, not with, but he is with us, but we are joined by Andy Crouch. Uh, Andy is actually in the studio. We never have a guest in the studio. In the flesh. In the flesh. Right. Incarnate. Incarnate. Yes. Uh, also wearing a onesie, surprisingly. <laughs> it's what he travels in. So It's very comfortable. Yeah, I mean, if you're going to fly a lot, which I'm sure you do, a onesie is a good thing to have on. So um, Andy Crouch is here. He's doing a forum for us this evening on uh, TechWise Family. Mm-hmm. And so we just couldn't be more thrilled to have you. Thank you for joining us. I'm so glad to be here. Well, we're grateful. Um, and so, hey, before we jump into asking some questions about theology, culture, and power and the intersection there, mm-hmm. tell us a little bit about Praxis and what you're doing there. Yeah, Praxis is an organization that works with entrepreneurs uh, to accelerate what we call redemptive entrepreneurship. So people who want to... Like pluggies. Uh, clearly, uh, Jen <laughs> yeah. is a candidate. Yeah. <laughs> not necessarily a very good candidate with that <laughs> idea, but... Uh, oh, that's not the end of my idea. <laughs> <laughs> well, we, we work with promising people who... Uh, <laughs> So good. That's awesome. Um, Often are in kind of the early stage of their venture, uh, both for-profit and not-for-profit. We think both sides of kind of those sectors need really creative uh, entrepreneurial work. And we try to surround them with great mentors, with kind of theological training, spiritual formation, um, and all the resources they need to accelerate their venture. So we're kind of modeled on these accelerators that uh, are familiar from Silicon Valley, um, but we're doing it through a specifically Christian lens to ask what difference does the gospel make if you're starting a new company or a new nonprofit. Okay. Wow. That sounds like a really cool it's venture. incredibly fun. Okay. Yeah. And so you have written a lot about culture and power. I mean, you have hmm. books 
those words in the title. Yeah. Um, and so uh, when when we thought about, man, we're going to have him in the room. What can we talk about? You know, Knowing Faith is really a podcast that's committed to exploring issues of Christian story and Christian belief and Christian formation. And so we really thought, man, it would be interesting to have um, just kind of more of a, a conversation around some of the doctrinal underpinnings mm. that exist when we're talking about those topics. And so I want to begin with this question, and then I think this will just get us moving. Um, so the church, like all institutions, has to think seriously about stewarding its authority and influence. So what do you think are some of the, the key Christian beliefs that anchor or mm. provide ballast for the stewardship of that influence and power? Like, what are the things uh-huh. that keep the church rooted? <laughs> uh, it has this great authority and stewardship and power entrusted to it. How does something with that much authority and power stay balanced? And what do you think some wow. of the key things are that keep it there? Wow. I don't know that it's always been kept in the right place. I think, uh, in a way, the history of Christianity is a, a history of wrong turns with respect to power. Um and misconceptions, but it is true that at the heart of the gospel and of our faith is are, are some really amazing, very counterintuitive, very unlikely beliefs. And so, where I'd start would actually be uh, the doctrine of creation. So the and we tend to think of that as being about God making the world, right? Um, but the doctrine of creation is really about power in the sense that it says that the deepest form of power is creative power. Mm-hmm. And almost all human societies and almost all human beings uh, in, instinctively think the deepest form of power is coercive power. Mm-hmm. So, uh, and this has become, this is because uh, coercive power is very visceral and it's very evident. If I, you know, try to make you do something, if I have the physical force to do that, that will be an extremely memorable event, uh, very possibly a traumatic event if it's violent. But even just parenting, like, uh, it's not necessarily violent, but there are times when you have to coerce your child and you can do it because you're bigger and stronger. Mm-hmm. And we sometimes think, well, God is like the biggest, strongest, baddest creature or you know, thing in the universe. Um, when in fact, when the Bible presents God uh, on page one as who God is, it starts with him creating. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and actually, interestingly, just hovering at first. The spirit hovered over chaos, right? And then God speaks and something comes into being. And that's creative power, which the interesting thing is you cannot coerce something into being. All that coercion can do is move things around uh, or actually destroy things if it's uh, destructive kind of coercion. But creation actually bring thing, brings things into being. But the church forgot this in many ways. And we, we, we got uh, very closely allied with, especially with the state and, and kind mm. of the function of the state in human affairs, that is uh, government, is to actually exercise coercive power on behalf of a community. Mm. The state is should be the only thing that can make you do something. Uh, that's why the state has police, um, but I don't have my own police, uh, right? And, and the function of that is for the state to hold kind of for the needs of justice, the ability to course. But once the church got a hold of the ability to course, <laughs> well, we had a lot, a lot of wrong turns, which we could talk about. I don't know. Well, how does that strike you guys? <laughs> well, I mean, yeah, I mean, I think just one of the most common objections you hear about the Christian faith mm. is around those wrong turns. Yes. Like when people are like, yes. if, if they're throwing up flares, right, yes. and you're talking to them about Christianity, a big flare they will throw up very quickly is, well, hasn't the church made a lot of wrong turns as it pertains to power, right? That's exactly right. So, Andy, where would you instruct the church as we think about uh, being a people who have inappropriately and in our broken neediness used perhaps coercive power, not creative power? Mm. What doctrine, other than the uh. doctrine of creation, <laughs> can we perhaps 
uh, I'm not sure rebalance is the right word, but look to yeah. in order to recreate or rethink or imagine a better way of being in the world. Wow. You know, in a way, uh, the church wasn't the first to get it wrong. In a way, Israel, God's original yeah, chosen right. people, also got it wrong. Looking for ways. kings like the other nations. Exactly. They're like, we would like one of those who mm-hmm. will <laughs> smite our enemies. And, Military uh, force, yeah. economic force, protect yeah. us from and, vulnerability. And then what Israel has to do is they are too small mm-hmm. to win the coercive game. There are these huge empires around them, so they build these military alliances mm-hmm. with Egypt, or uh, and those backfire. Um, and, and Israel goes into exile because of its uh, kind of complicity in mm. in the ancient Near Eastern system of coercion, you might say. So, <laughs> I mean, this is going to sound very, very predictable in a way, but I wonder if the next doctrine you need is incarnation. Right. So when the Messiah comes, the Messiah is, is thought to be the one who's going to kind of coercively, powerfully reclaim for mm-hmm. Israel its land, its autonomy, its own independent power. Um and when the Messiah is actually born, it's this completely different thing from what anyone thought. And and even just the idea that um, the fullness of God is is present in this baby, uh, and and that God comes to this young—I mean, we would probably call her a girl, um, and teenager presumably—and and her and God gives her the chance to ask questions. <laughs> How is this going to be? Mary says to the angel. Um, and and then and give permission. Uh, let it me, be to me according to your word. Uh, and and that let it be that Mary says actually echoes the let it be of creation. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's the same form of the verb actually in in, uh, in the original language. It's this it's uh, this permission giving and and creation is this kind of opening up a possibility rather than imposing of of uh, of order. So I just I think we would need a more deeply incarnational view of power, that it's okay for it to start small, mm-hmm. uh, as Jesus said in other contexts, like a mustard seed mm-hmm. rather than some big, massive uh, tree. Uh, it's, a, it's okay for it to start weak, uh, but actually that deep creative influence comes out of even very small things. I want to maybe give uh, some of our listeners some, uh, maybe obviously everything we've been saying is rooted in scripture, but a specific scripture I think of when, when this topic comes up is Philippians chapter two, huh, yes. uh, thinking about yes, Christ's yes. example of humility, the creator taking upon vulnerability in himself. So I just want to uh, read a few sentences from it, if that's okay. So thinking in Philippians chapter two, beginning in verse four, let each of you look not only to your own interests, but to the interests of others. So, so don't be operating with coercive power. Um, rather have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. The one who has become incarnate is the one who is the creative power behind everything, but yet takes upon vulnerability. Mm. As we'll see here, verse six, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God, a thing to be grasped. Grasped, which is totally a, a coercive. Kind That's of, exactly I mean, right. Hold He's on not to grasping. This, yeah, rather, rather, it. Yeah. rather than grasping and exploiting, he empties himself by taking the form of a servant, mm. being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And this mm. word is my favorite. Well, there's a lot of favorite words in that passage, but <laughs> therefore, yeah. Yeah. in light of him not using coercive power, but creative, imaginative, humbling power, wow. Wow. therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed upon him the name that's above every name so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Hmm. 
Uh, isn't it amazing? But and you all may know, but this was almost certainly uh, Paul is not just making this up. It's almost certainly a song a hymn, yeah. that they already sing. This is like the first praise song or That's the right. first worship song. Uh, is just that text, mm-hmm. and it it totally like captures this entire renovation of how we understand power that happens above all in the incarnation, but really referring all the way back to how God is presented as creator at the very beginning. Mm, It's rich. The CSB Life Council Bible provides biblical counsel and practical wisdom for pastors, ministry leaders, counselors, parents, couples, and any individual seeking practical wisdom through the application of God's Word. It includes more than 150 full-length articles on a wide range of topics and tough issues from respected Christian counselors and scholars. Visit csblifecouncilbible.com to get your copy today. Visit csblifecouncilbible.com to get your copy today. What bridge is God calling you to cross that the gospel might go forth among the nations? Women like Lilius Trotter, Harriet Newell, and Sarah Hall Boardman Judson have indeed crossed their own bridges to get to the lost. Discover the stories of 10 inspiring female missionaries who changed the world for Christ. 10 Women Who Changed the World as Seminary President Daniel Aiken's powerful tribute to these women who fulfilled the Great Commission. May we all follow in their footsteps. 10 Women Who Changed the World is available wherever books are sold. So when the church resorts to coercive power instead of creative power, I'm thinking about how this affects not just the way that we interact with the world. Mm. But like within the church, I'm thinking about ways that this translates into bad theology. I'm uh. thinking specifically of how, am I, am I right to think that when we engage, if we, if we adopt a coercive mentality around power, that then we begin, we, we begin with wanting to control our neighbor, but yes. we terminate on wanting to control God himself. Oh my goodness. Mm-hmm. Right? So I think it's like <laughs> the word faith movement. I know, right. Or even legalism. Is it legalism just a way of building the tower to heaven? uh, Where we say, I will meet God on my terms. Or or it can also be like, so thinking of law as something that binds uh, both actors. Mm -hmm. Legalism thinks if I follow the law, then God has to do something Mm -hmm. for me. Mm -hmm. It's it's sort of God's now in a position of being coerced Mm -hmm. uh, because I I did the right thing. So now you have to do the right thing. They obligate God to us, right. Right. Yeah, I was thinking about how the great commandment connects to this and how you get this corrupted version of the great commandment where you coerce your neighbor and then turn to coerce God himself. Oh, goodness. And, and you're hitting on something, yeah, painfully hitting on something, a nerve that um, I, that I think we talk we don't talk enough about, which is that in uh, religious institutions, and, and uh, of course the church is kind of your paradigm for that, but but in religious institutions, because there is conversation about this is what God has said, mm-hmm. and there's interpretation of that, right. there is this layer of really. Um, unquestionable authority and power that you might not have in another existing institution Mm. that might just have their Mm. bylaws or constitution or a great vision or even a captivating communicator at the helm. (laughs) When you get into a church, all of a sudden we kind of all are stepping in kind of a mutual agreement that God has spoken and that we should listen. And the people that are practicing that and interpreting that for the congregation have 
a lot of a lot of opportunity to turn that yes. uh, for Power. creation or coercion. Mm-hmm. Yes. So it seems like in my experience that churches that fancy themselves as theologically sophisticated can have some of the most pronounced struggles with stewarding authority faithfully. <laughs> and um, why does it seem that... <laughs> Welcome uh, to the show, Andy. Right? <laughs> like, wow, they go there on this podcast. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Kyle, Kyle goes there. Yeah, I go, I go, I go there. <laughs> Uh, like an ember burning out. This is Kyle's last show with us. <laughs> um, Do every show like it's your last. No, for sure. Uh, I just, when I get done, I just yell up. I'm like, I, I love this church. I love being here. Um, why does it seem like an emphasis uh-huh. on theological clarity sometimes can lead to an abuse of pl- power? Why? Oh, man. Why, why do churches that feel like, man, hey, we got, hey, listen, we got a doctrine of creation statement that's impeccable. <laughs> Our doctrine of incarnation statement is incredible. Yes. Right? I mean, like, we're, we got, we've got the theological engine. Yes. What happens? Oh, wow. Ooh, that's so interesting. So, well, I wonder, here's my take on it. Uh, I think you're onto something. Um, oh, wow. I will say that fuzzy, <laughs> that churches that are fuzzy about some of these things ha- can be just as manipulative and yeah, um, messed up. So I, I'm not, I'd have to think about whether I think kind of churches that really emphasize theology, are they more likely to abuse power? I think it might be a different kind of abuse. But okay. the kind that I think comes in is is actually from this word you use, theological clarity. Mm-hmm. So here's the thing. God uh, is a great mystery. Like, mm-hmm. it is a great mystery to say that God made this world and that God entered this world as a human being. And uh, this it's not that we can't speak clearly about that. But the idea that we could, in a sense, nail down what what it is to speak of God, <laughs> uh, the the East um, the Eastern Christians, the Orthodox Christians, um, distinguish between. Uh, uh, sorry for the big. Well, they're just Greek words. They're not big words, but they are unfamiliar words to us. Between what's called cataphatic theology and apophatic theology, and cataphatic uh, means kind of declaring something that's true, and it's absolutely part of theology. But apophatic is is actually refraining from speaking because you can't possibly give words uh, to the reality that you're trying to approach. Mm. And this is where music comes in that doesn't have lyrics. This is where art comes in. This is where poetry, in a way, comes in. Poetry can kind of, even as it speaks, withhold an explanation. Mm. And I think that when your theology gets too cataphatic, that is too much about the explanation, too much about sort of nailing it down, you do start to have this kind of mechanical model of the universe in which we can figure it all out, uh, we can specify it, we can know it, we can comprehend it. But, uh, I mean, the, you just, you, you know, the, the deepest problem with this is it simply causes you to live in a false way. Mm-hmm. Because no matter how even accurate our theology might be, when we actually try to live it out in the world... It's such a mystery how to live it out. Yeah, yeah. You know, I'm praying today for the the sister of a friend who was hit by a truck a week ago, and her entire face was shattered, and they're trying to reconstruct her face. And this is one of those faithful families you can imagine. And she's the mother of four kids. And if you have a theological system that can account for that without mystery, mm-hmm. pain, wordlessness, groaning rather than some answer, I think you are set up to be very abusive. Mm. So um, so I think you're on to something that, that when we let theology be kind of our index of whether we've got things right, rather than kind of rehearsing scripture itself, which often is not theological, often is kind of apophatic, often is poetic, often is elusive, then we're in trouble. 
Hmm. One of the things we talk about a lot in the training program uh, related to knowledge of God and how do we come to a knowledge of God is that the the enlightenment, or you could say um, kind of this renaissance of human knowledge fundamentally changes the way knowers know and the way objects are known. Mm. So specifically that that we in the enlightenment and in a modern self kind of put ourselves above objects of knowledge and we elicit information from it. So science is like this or math or kind of doing any, any research field is... This is the body of knowledge. I'm going to pull information from it, almost yes. as the God standing above it. And so I can wield it. And so you can wield yes. it. That's yes. exactly yes. right. So and actually, it. you become the authority right. rather than the body of information having right. the authority. Oh, right. And with with theology and fundamentally our understanding of what Scripture is, is, it, is it's the opposite. We stand under this body of knowledge. The term we use, another big term, is epistemological grace. That anything that we can't... <laughs> now, that is a big word. Yeah, yeah. I just want to say. Yeah. So to define it, anything that we can know of God is a received knowledge. Yeah. It's a, it's a revealed knowledge. It's a gift wow. that, that God is gracious to make himself known to us and to known to us truly. Yeah, because I feel like there's a whole body of literature, theological literature, that's all about here's doctrine and here's what you can do with it. Mm-hmm. Right, and I think that uh, I think with I think uh, that whenever some of our doctrinal categories wow. become, like you said, an index, I think that's a great way of thinking about it. Huh. Of almost like, okay, how do we pro- like how can we process this? It's like, well, we this is the category it belongs to. This is how we move it through the bank of belief, and wow. then this is what we do with the person affected by it or the situation that's presenting mm. itself. And then it's wow. like, great, now we've kind of like we put the bow on it. Uh, I don't know why I'm I'm gesticulating while I'm doing this as if I'll, the audience I'll can just see. put a bow on it. If you I, like it, then I, you better put a bow on it. <laughs> True, or a ring on it, right? Um, well, so we just have a few more minutes with you, but you've written at length for the uh, the need of recovering the role and value of institutions uh-huh. in an age of anti-institutional bias. Which might seem totally like opposite to what we've been talking about. I think a lot of people might think, get rid of oh, the yeah, institutions. So let's get rid of those yeah. coercive institutions. Right, yes. yeah. So, so why institutions? Why, why are you so passionate about seeing this recovery in an age in which this has got to be one of the most unpopular things you're saying? <laughs> right? I just have to imagine that. Like you sound a little like an old guy, a cranky resonate. old guy. It yeah, doesn't right. No, we, you know, write that donor check to that institution. And I'm, here I'm a millennial. I'm like, I'm never going to write a donor check to a college I went to. And you're like, no, 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 you should if it's a good college. Wow. That's yeah. how I, when, I, when I've heard you yeah. talk about it, I've kind of been yeah. like, oh, I don't know. I don't know if I buy it. Wow. So it, it does, of course, depend on what you mean by institution. Uh, if you mean kind of the modern bureaucratic organization, very large scale, very routinized, um, very coercion based, I'm not especially attached to that. That's a sort of a modern thing. We got it from the Germans. Uh, the Germans can have it back as far as I'm concerned. Um, <laughs> But think about it. Uh, <laughs> not in Germany, but <laughs> that's, that's actually how we're going to brand this episode. Yeah. The Germans have them back. Yeah. The Andy Crouch show. Mm-hmm. And, insti- uh, and incidentally, that that college institution uh, was very shaped by a German model of higher education mm-hmm. uh, that that we kind of thought would uh, raise up the American educational system. I think we made some wrong turns. Um, so I'm not at all thinking, you know, that all the existing institutions are good. But here's what I mean by an institution, and here's why I think I think we all have to care about them, especially if we actually care about culture and power. Is an institution is a is a cultural pattern that can last over time and that can spread uh, through space, can spread through the world. And if you care about flourishing, that is, if you want people to flourish, 
you're going to have to build a way for them to flourish for a long time because mm -hmm. uh, until the return of uh, Christ, we're going to have more and more people who need to flourish. And it, you should care about flourishing all over the world. And you're going to have to build something that can last generation after generation and can spread from, in a sense, nation to nation. Okay. Um, and hold good things kind of in stewardship for others. And so much of our ambition now has gotten very small, like some amazing number. You use the word millennial. I don't tend to use that word, but since you brought it up, uh, when you ask people who are that age that we call millennial right now, uh, what their biggest ambition is, the number one thing they want to be is famous. Right. Like that's the number one millennial ambition, which by the way is crazy because most people who are famous hate being famous right. and rearrange their lives to avoid the pain of being famous yeah. and medicate themselves to deal with it. But that is such a self-centered kind of picture of mm -hmm what the best what would be the best thing for my life it would be for everybody to know who I am right. like that's so narrow compared to what would be the best thing for my life it would be to contribute something that generations from now after I'm gone is still blessing people mm -hmm. and that in places I'll never go will actually bless people mm -hmm. and this is the basic work of institutions and institution building and institution sustaining so is an institution <laughs> an expression of creative authority oh bring order out of chaos completely right? okay. so uh, the best, like, um, <laughs> the best example, and and sometimes the, the word institution is even used in theology for this, uh, is two things Jesus did uh, the night before he was killed. So he's sitting at dinner with his uh, disciples, and he, uh, there's this, there is an institution in a way in, in his world, in their world, that uh, usually a slave would come around before dinner and wash everyone's feet. But if there's no slave in the room, then the lowest status person in the room, like everyone would sort of look around and figure out who's the lowest status, the youngest or whatever, and that person would have to do that job. No one has done it because all the disciples are they don't, none kind of them of think. a big deal. Yes, exactly. <laughs> millennials. <laughs> no, no, okay. I really didn't All right, Jen. That. <laughs> I actually like millennials. I appreciate birth that. to four. <laughs> so here's, so Jesus picks up the towel, takes off his robe, like, and, and walk, goes around and wash their feet. And then, and, and then says, uh, the servant does what the master does. So if you're really my servants, you're going to do this. Now on Thursday before Good Friday in my church and in, millions of churches around the world, we did this exact thing. And I went up and someone I didn't even know washed my feet. And then my wife was right behind me. So I washed her feet. And th this has lasted for 2000 years, uh, generation to generation, spread all over the world. It completely redefines how we understand power. It says the greatest is going to serve. Mm -hmm. And that is an institution. Mm -hmm. uh, and so is, of course, the meal the bread and the cup mm -hmm. that he gave. Mm -hmm. And we still do that. So when you think about institutions that way, mm. like I'm going to be part of, now think about how creative that is. No one had ever thought in Jesus's position to wash feet. If mm -hmm. you were the rabbi, you didn't do that. And no one had ever taken the cup of the Passover meal and said, this is actually going to represent my own sacrifice. So very creative, but also authority, like shaping how other people believe, behave, imagine. That's creative authority. And he did it not just in a way that worked for those 12 or however many folks were around that table, but in a way that we've all shared in. And it's mm -hmm. shaped our lives and it's given us a way to imagine the world. That's creative authority right there. I love that. And so that's what I mean. So even to take this back to the church, I mean, if we could, as a church, begin to speak into and live into this wave, mm -hmm. not using coercive authority, but creative authority to look like the body of Jesus, the analogy that the Bible gives us. But also, mm -hmm. I think this is your why for what you're doing right now with Praxis is not only should churches be doing this, but the people of faith 
uh, who are living as entrepreneurs and shaping businesses, mm-hmm. that they wouldn't just create a business that creates money for people or creates a system of economy, but actually contribute to the well-being and flourishing of society. Exactly. So we all go out now and we try to build things bigger than ourselves that will last longer than ourselves that somehow have the imprint on them of creation, incarnation, crucifixion, resurrection. Like that's our assignment, all of us, mm-hmm. every single every, every single follower of Christ. I think that's really persuasive. So just to land them plain here, if somebody's listening to this and they think, okay, you know what? I, I'm willing to give it a go. I feel like hmm. I've, I've been burnt by some institution or I've been a part of institutions. I think it's broken or fractured or by nature, I'm an individualist or whatever. But, you know, I'm willing to step into that. What's a, pra- like, what's a practical step that you'd give them? And I, w- I, I do want to, I want to step into yeah. um, being a part of, you know, some sort of institution that is for human flourishing. How would you, what's one maybe just directive or a piece of advice you'd give them? I think two things. I'd start where you are. Uh, so not, we're, we're so grandiose in mm-hmm. our dreams when, in fact, so so often we just need to look at where am I? What have I been given? What's the neighborhood I'm in? And is there an institution here? And then the second thing I would say is in this place where I am, uh, I I think there's a bias in the Christian life towards the vulnerable. So is there somewhere that is holding human vulnerability in a way that helps even the vulnerable flourish? So this could be a school. It could be a program at your local hospital. It could be a program for kids after school. There's so many different things. And it doesn't have to be large scale, but it does have to have some prospect of being bigger than just you. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. then go be part of it and find a way to be creative in it. And yeah. um, that's, in a way, all anything that we get to do is built of starting yeah. where we are and ideally serving the vulnerable where we are. That's so helpful. Andy, thank you so much for coming on the show. I really am grateful for that. It's it's awesome having somebody here in flesh. It is. <laughs> Taking on authority and vulnerability yeah. in the room. <laughs> Listen, it's if, great to be with you guys. For more information, you can look into the show notes in the podcast description. We'd be honored for you to leave us a podcast review on iTunes or wherever you find your podcast. You can find us online at trainingthechurch.com. You can find us on Instagram and Twitter by searching Knowing Faith. On our next episode, we're going to be talking about what Jesus says about the end of the world. Right, okay, fun, right? can we play Pat, that Kyle's song? Kyle's going to do all the talking. <laughs> yeah, it's just we're just we're just going to play Left Behind, just the audio book. <laughs> It's the end of the world as we know it. Yeah, it's going to be and great. I feel fine. If we can get the licensing for it, Let's we it. we might well, actually sure we actually might be sued just for that right there. <laughs> you just even that reference. Was that like, wait, is that like?